Coach. Hey, brother. Can you hear hey, me? How, yeah, I love, your, I love your background. Yeah, I'm at the house. We got uh, we got the African animals and deer heads and whatever in the background. I I thought I'd be quiet and other than my pack of dogs, uh, I thought it'd be a little easier to uh, do it here at the house today. Likewise. So this is my first podcast uh, that I'm doing ever from my office. So <clears throat> I wrapped up my office hours, but it's just easier to do it here than drive back and get situated. I'm set up to do it here. So all good. Cool. Yeah. Well, how's it, how's it going, man? You doing all right today? Good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, got some good training in uh, the Tuesdays and Thursdays are uh the mornings we we dedicate to uh, strength and conditioning. So, um, 101 pull-ups, 105 push-ups, 105 reps of uh, hanging ab work, uh, 110, I'm sorry, 110 pull-ups, push-ups, 110 reps of hanging ab, ab, but everything, the last sets were all weighted. So the first 90 are without weight and then um, strapping on I, I, the pull-ups uh, was wearing 50 pounds and the push-ups uh, 40 pounds and the hanging ab raises was with 25 pounds. So it adds up, you know, I mean, it's a, and we're trying to get it done in, inside of 45 minutes. So you just, your body goes catabolic. Once once we start our working sets, I mean, we walked and stretched and warmed up. But then once I start my working sets, um, especially as you age, which is factor I pretty much have to deal with these days, um, thirty to forty minutes, you uh, your te your T levels just absolutely plummet. You know, drop off. So for strength and conditioning, you really need to try to get in and get your workouts done in about 30 to 40 minutes. So um, we had three people in the rotation today. I've got a friend in from out of town from North Carolina for business. And he's also getting ready for the pans, the brown belt. So he's getting ready for the pans. And so we've been doing a lot of, uh, been doing some extra training. And I had him uh, doing a modified version of the routine just because he's not, man, if that volume, if you're not used to it, it will blow you up. You know what I mean? That's a good way to uh, injure somebody so that if you're not used to doing that kind of volume. So, uh, I, but having extra people in the rotation, it took just a little bit longer than I would have liked for it to, to got that, that routine in. But typically I want to be done as close to 40, 45, 40, 45 minutes. I want to be close to done as possible just because I know after that it's point of diminishing returns. You know, you, you start kind of going catabolic. You start, uh, you know, scavenging uh, uh, protein in your muscles, and it it, it puts it on you. Um, younger guys don't have that much. I mean, it's not such a concern, you know, when you're when you're younger. But the older I get, it's it's smarter. I, you know, everything. There's a place for everything, and everything in its place, you know. So. I have to I find that being really, really consistent with my training 
be, but also being consistent because like yesterday, my day was I up 5.30 at the gym at 6. I got home at 9.20 last night, you know, and I mean, had various workouts and training sessions and private letting, and that's a lot of volume, you know, so I woke up this morning, I thought I'd been wrapped in a quilt and beat with a baseball bat. So active recovery before I began streaming. Uh, we literally, we started the workout with a 15 minute walk and then, or you know, yeah, 12 to 15 minute walk. Man, I'm doing then, that you know, more and more, just walking before I exercise. I've walked more in the last year. And I thought several times about you telling me over the years that you walked and I'm like, walking? Now yeah. I'm doing it like every day. I mean, no lie. Yeah. I'm such a huge, and I, I forget who it is because I'm bad with names and I've been hitting that too many times, but there's one of the top UFC coaches, you know, top MMA coach. He makes all his play, you know, all his fighters walk for, you know, 30 minutes in the morning um, prior to beginning training. Even when I was running a lot of bleachers and doing other stuff, I've always incorporated walking into uh, my routines in the, walking is good for you sprinting is good for you jogging will just beat your body up you know so i uh and and there's so many health benefits to just walking you know i mean the literature is uh deep out there so i'm a i'm a huge fan and a lot of times i'll use it even when people are paying me you know top dollar for a private lesson a lot of times I'll start with about a 12 and, and the, the literature is pretty consistent about 12 to 15 minutes of walking. You tap into a long-term energy source, which is going to be fat. You tend to burn more fat. If you immediately start stressing the body, you're going to, the body's going to get the most immediate energy source, which is going to be glycogen in the blood or glycogen in the muscles. And then you, it's easier for the body to burn protein or muscle for energy than it is fat. But the body works kind of on a hierarchy of needs, right? So you start walking, and, and I'm not talking about just slow, you know, I mean, just a good, not, not jogging, just a good brisk walk, just, you know, like you're, you're a man on a mission kind of walk. Um, your body goes, oh, we're doing something. But in, in that 12 to 15 minutes, kind of gets your body to tap into fat as a reserve as an energy source, you know? So then when I, when you step up the routine and you really start, you know, going into whatever's next after the walk, you're already kind of in a fat burning mode. You've already kind of switched that lever. And now what you're doing is you're getting more out of your training. So if you go from walking and you walk and you go in and you jump a few rounds of rope or you shadow box or you start your lifting or whatever, you've already kicked your body into fat burning mode and then you're going to burn more fat than what you might normally would, you know? So uh, it, it, every year that goes by, my mantra, everybody trains hard. It's who trains smart, hard. So, you know, I mean, I've got to try to, uh, I got to, I got to pay attention to those things. Cause just as you get old, your metabolism slows down. You find that workouts that would just shred you up a few years ago, <laughs> doesn't have quite the same effect, you know? And I'm like, oh man. So uh, I would whine because it's like, man, I'd work out with one group of guys in the morning and they get ripped. And I work out with another group of guys at lunch, they're getting ripped and I'm training my guys in the evening and they're getting ripped. 
and I'm kind of staying the same. Well, the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same things and expect different results. So I really started having to practice what I preached and start looking at nutrition, looking at, you know, how I'm, uh, my, 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 my macro and my micros as far as I'm eating, start looking at doing some of the little things and the, you know, adding in, making sure that I'm getting the walking in and, and the recovery. And it's funny, the uh, guy I've got in from out of town, I was telling him, I don't believe in overtraining. I do believe in undernutritioning, underresting, under recovering. So a lot of times I don't think it's overtraining is the issue. It's that people didn't do what they need to do to support that kind of training. You know, so my, my rest, you know, as a, as a young man, you know, I mean, I could, I could charge hard on three, four, five hours of sleep. I can't, I mean, I get away with it once in a while, but I have to have, I've got to have my sleep. Um, I got to do more active recovery. So the yin and yang, the working out, I have to do the soft stuff if I still want to do some of the hardcore stuff, you know, and I find that my nutrition, um, has to be a lot more spot on. I, I can't get away. I mean, you just hit a point where you can't out train a bad diet. I just can't, you know I mean? Nobody can. You, it just gets to that point that it's garbage in, it's the old gigo, right? Garbage in, garbage out. And if I'm not, if I'm not eating clean and not getting my protein in and watching my uh, white carbs and watching uh, what I'm doing, and I, I just don't see uh, the results. And it amazes me, my one of my, nobody wants to see a, a fat martial arts instructor, you know? I'm like, I don't care how old you are. And I understand, like, we all hit a point in our life where we might not be quite as lean and panther-like as we were, you know, in our 20s or 30s. But I'm, I'm like, man, if, if you're as a martial artist, if you're supposed to be out there teaching discipline and, you know, self-defense and exercise, and you don't have the discipline or you can't defend yourself from the kitchen table, you know, you don't have the discipline to do that, that, you know, table push away. And how, how are you supposed to peddle anything else that you know? So uh, anyway, kind of the primer on practicing what I preach there, you know? You know, you did write a book on all this. People can buy it on Amazon, right? He's <laughs> yeah. staying the fight. Is that still for sale on Amazon? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Last time I checked. Um, it, which is great. Magazine, I, I think you can get Okay. I still do. I, I was, I've been rehabbing my shoulder. I've been getting like some laser th physical therapy done on it. And I was doing rotator cuff exercises from that book the other day, you know, and have gone to it several times when I've been injured or when I'm not injured, just to see what it says, just to see what's in there. So I, I would recommend it to anybody. Cool. Well, I appreciate that, man. Uh, yeah, I, that was a body of work that I was really proud of. And, and talk about challenging because I hadn't done that much writing since college. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, I've got a degree in psychology. So there was a time when I wrote a lot of papers, but that, uh, that was a little bit of a, a, a different challenge. But, you know, I still, in a lot of those routines, that are in that book, I'm, I still do, you know, shoulders, especially for my back and hips, just overcoming hip surgeries. And, and it's all about, uh, you know, it, here's what was inspiring to me today in my morning workout is that 
I mean, we got after it. It was, I had two people with me. One is 82 years old and the other one who's uh, also training brown belt and BJJ and is training for the pans has also got a really rare form of cancer and has been battling cancer. And, you know, I look at those two guys that how inspirational, you know, I mean, one, uh, Mr. Perry, he, he did hundred pull-ups. I mean, hundred push-ups, hundred reps of ab work. Incredible. And his last sets were weighted. And then the other gentleman, Chris Sparks, who's in from North Carolina, he, uh, I had his volume dialed back because he's not used to doing this routine. I'm not going to, you know, start somebody at the high end of a routine that's taken me years to develop, you know, to get that volume up, but he's in there training. And I know that, I mean, he's had, uh, he's, he's in the, in the middle of a, uh, a battle for his life with cancer. And yet he's still in there. He's oxygenating, he's exercising, he's working out. And, uh, man, pretty inspirational because keeping that attitude up when you're fighting something like freaking cancer is, uh, is huge, you know, and nobody has an expiration date stamped on them. You know, I mean, none of us know what, what the future holds, you know, we just don't. So, I mean, he's in there fighting the good fight. And in the meantime, man, he's, he's, he's maximizing his moments in the gym. He's maximizing, his good days when he feels good. I mean, he's been with me for about a week and there's been a couple of times he was like, coach, I'm out. I got to go home, go to bed early. You know, he rests up, gets up the next morning. He puts his big boy pants on and gets a good, uh, he gets, uh, you know, kind of sucks it up and he's ever the optimist, but that attitude is everything. I mean, you know, and the thing is, is that at the end of the day, um, what an example. You know, what an example of fortitude and, and stuff. I mean, it's, it's humbling. I'm, I'm uh, so proud to have them. So, you know, when I start thinking, oh, my elbows hurt, my shoulders hurt, my back hurts, I was looking at those two guys and I went, you know, I, I pretty much just need to keep my mouth shut and just train today, <laughs> you know. So it was, pretty, uh, it was pretty motivating and at the same time kind of humbling. So I, uh, I was just like, ah, I better just kind of go with it. Hey, are you familiar uh, with who Greg Nelson is? Greg Nelson, he's a, he's on, he's connected to Chai and he's an Inasano guy. And uh, he yeah. has a, okay. Yes, he yes. had, two, I never knew this about him. I just knew he had awesome clinch work, but he's, he survived two rare forms of cancer and I never knew. And he had, I've been listening to him up here on some podcasts and uh, his story is super inspirational. I mean, you know how you talked about like when you, well, like I was around you a lot when you were going to get your last hip surgery and you were like, I'm training for this shit like a fight. I remember you saying that. And that guy very much so was like, oh, now we know what kind of cancer we're fighting. Like he just had a mindset that was very martial arts mindset oriented you know and it's to hear him talk about it and i never knew i i followed him knew who he was watched his videos but just never knew anything about his personal life but super inspiring story good 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 all right well at least we got a good a good fitness clip on that other take man that'll make a good clip for my instagram we we had some good content rolling until we got cut off i don't know what happened yeah it froze up on you 
Yeah, I mean, you were talking, and then it froze, and then it booted you off. So I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> well, no worries. So uh, so we're talking some jiu-jitsu today, though. Um, so you're the first black belt in Arkansas, or you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt in the state to be promoted. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, so the uh, – I mean, I, I, I did a seminar with Horian and Hoist Gracie um, I was doing some Japanese jiu-jitsu with a guy by the name of Burl Parsons. And uh, I had kind of a family style of jiu-jitsu that, uh, um, that I was training in. And uh, I had come across uh, uh, my guy that I did some Muay Thai with, Thai kickboxing from uh, Springfield, Missouri, uh, a guy by the name of B.J. Johnson. Um, some of the people that ran with him, uh, I guess BJ or maybe it was Michael Shell, Dr. Shell, who was uh, uh, an apprentice instructor uh, under Jeff Gibson, who was a uh, Terry, not Jeff, Terry Gibson, who was a uh, oh, yeah. uh, you know, instructor out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, yeah. Terry died of cancer. We were talking about people with cancer. Um, Terry had passed a cancer a long time ago, but I had done a Chai Sarasut seminar at, at Terry Gibson's place and Dr. Shell was affiliated. Anyway, um, old names from back in the day. They uh, uh, came across in the late 80s a Bart Vale tape, um, and it was some shoot fighting out of Japan. I mean, Bart Vale was doing – MMA before anybody in America knew what MMA was, you know, the old school. I mean, that's where headbutts were legal. Um, it was incredible. They were mixing, you know, grappling and striking. And I remember seeing, uh, seeing that tape just being blown away because these guys were hardcore beating the hell out of each other. I mean, you know, guys, you know, the answer to being stuck in the guard was just to headbutt somebody repetitively. Um, it was you know, kind of raw, you know, to say the least. And then uh, shortly around, somewhere around that time, started hearing about the Gracie Challenge, you know, I mean, uh, you start dipping back into the 80s, you know, Lethal Weapon came out. Uh, Orion uh, was uh, one of the fight choreographers for the Lethal Weapon franchise. Um, you know, the fight with uh, Mel Gibson at the at the end of the movie, and he's, you know, working some jiu-jitsu. That was, that was pretty ground-breaking, uh, and the, the whole Gracie Challenge stuff. Well, then uh, there was a, uh, a guy in Conway, Arkansas, that uh, preacher of a church. He was doing Muay Thai with my man, BJ. I, I would go up there sometimes. They had a group. I was helping out with their group. Uh, anyway, uh, he brought the Gracie's in, brought Horian and Hoist in. Now, he, now, this is January, it was around New Year's, either December of 90 or January of 91. It was right around, I can't remember if it was plus or minus New Year's, but let's just say the beginning of 91, just to be on the safe side. <coughs> the, uh, they came in and did this seminar in, in uh, Conway. And uh, it was three years, just about three full years before the first UFC. 
So if you hadn't weren't kind of like tied in and read some of the articles, I mean, nobody knew the Gracie's were. And uh, it was, uh, it was pretty uh, neat. Hoist was just young man, you know, he was the uh, leaning up against the wall. Horian taught the seminar and it was really uh, fascinating. And it was one of those things that, you know, man, I need to train this. Well, finding anybody that knew anything about the ground, 91, 92, 93 was difficult, you know? I was uh, continuing to train uh, in, in, uh, in, jiu in the Japanese stand-up jiu-jitsu, weeping style. Um, I did, uh, did some judo seminars. I don't claim to be any great judoka. Um, I have no formal rank in judo, but uh, I definitely was attending uh, some seminars to kind of get a little something, something here and there. Uh, I would hit what anybody up that had any kind of experience on the ground training. Then the UFC hit. Well, then it blew up, you know, and, and you got to remember at this time back those years, the early nineties, and I was still fighting. I mean, I was kickboxing. I was competing internationally. I was uh, traveling. So uh, that uh, that was that that at that point in time. Then after the UFC hit, uh, all of a sudden, jujitsu. You know, of course, voice made a big splash. And then with each passing UFC, there were uh, more and more. You know, people interested i think before ufc4 in tulsa i had a a friend that had done some training with me um he had been on the teams he was a uh, uh he'd been on the seal teams he was stationed out in hawaii and been training with helson he had gotten off the teams came back to arkansas and was working out with me in the gym we were training he goes hey Helson's going to be doing a seminar before UFC, you know, before the UFC in Tulsa, you want to go? I was like, yeah, you know, so we jump in the truck, drive to Tulsa and uh, work out. And uh, Elio Gracie was there. I mean, you know, and, and he, I remember him getting down on the mat and choking on me, demonstrating a technique. And I was like, oh, that is really cool. It's like being choked by Skeletor, you know I mean? He was in his 90s at the time and was still on the mat. So helping out. And uh, it was really, uh, really cool. From there, uh, I mean, and then it was just catching this seminar, that seminar, you know, you, 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 you trained where you could. I, I, I hit a couple of voices seminars and did one in Springfield, Missouri. And um, I forget, I, I went somewhere else to catch a seminar, caught a Carlos Machado seminar. Uh, at that time, uh, uh, Jeff Mullins in Memphis was bringing a lot of people into Memphis to do uh, seminars. Uh, Jeff now is now a uh, uh, boxing commissioner in Vegas, in the Nevada boxing uh, commissioner, and is living in Vegas. But he he brought a lot of good guys into his gym and uh, went up there. Uh, Max Bishop had uh, Henzo at his house, and I think Henzo stayed with him. Um, and uh, Max had a uh, real strong relationship with uh, Gokart Chavichian and, and uh, Gene LaBelle. And uh, I went, trained uh, 
trained out there uh, when Max had uh, Gene, Le- I mean, had uh, Gokar in. And of course, uh, 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 Jeff had Gene LaBelle in and Gokar was there. And I had met Gokar, I was teaching at a camp called the Karate College out in uh, Radford University. And this is now, we're starting to get into the mid, uh, mid 90s, about 95, I started teaching up there at that camp. And so I had a, a great opportunity and, and there were a lot of grapplers that were, they were bringing in and, and got to train a lot with Henzo, with Gokar, uh, in a seminar environment. You know, I mean, not, it's easy to overstate, like everybody's trained with somebody in a seminar that does not make you their student, you know? And so it's really easy for people to overstate, but at that time, man, in America, dude, it was, seminars were the only way that you got to, uh, that you really got to train. I mean, you know, it was tough, especially if you weren't out on, out on, in California or maybe New York and maybe, you know, in parts of Florida, there weren't a lot of guys. Uh, I ended up seminar, 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 and this guy, that guy, the other guy. And then uh, through a friend of mine, um, I got to meet Alan Goes. Uh, and Alan Goes was a Carlson Gracie black belt. He was on the Carlson Gracie black belt team. Um, phenomenal. I got to walk him out, you know, back when everybody did the Gracie train, you know, and I got to walk him. uh, I went down to Mobile, Alabama before one of the UFCs and uh, walked with him, you know, to the, walk him to the corner along with Carlson. And, and, uh, and that was, that was really a neat experience. He fought Dan Henderson at that fight. Um, That was the show where Pete Williams uh, knocked out uh, Mark Coleman with the uh, round kick to the face. That was a huge, a huge knockout in early UFC history, you know. Um, but that hooking up with uh, Allen was huge because that uh, really hadn't, really hadn't uh, formalized a relationship with anybody that I'd, that I'd been able to go work out with. And so uh, kind of really coming up underneath Allen was, was big. And then I would fly out. And, and I, I love training with go-car uh, seminars. I flew out to California and did some private lessons uh, with him. Um, I got to uh, – uh, and then uh, working out with Allen. Through Allen, I met a guy by the name of Joe Marrera, did a seminar with Joe. Um, Got to stay at his house, flew out to meet Alan, got to stay at Joe Marrera's house and go work out at his academy. And that was really, uh, that's really cool. Joe Marrera is the reason why I call it snaky move instead of shrimping, because he called it, Joe in his heavy accent, called it the Brazilian snaky move. And I'm like, okay, that's what I'm going to call it forever. I don't care what anybody else calls hipping out or shrimping, it's going to be the Brazilian. Yeah, snaky move. That comes from Joe Marrera. Uh, but Alan was instrumental in, in, in that. And then uh, Alan actually sent a young man by the name of Tony Emanuel to uh, Luna Rock. There was a group of us that needed to promote for Blue Belt. We'd been training with Alan for a couple of years. And, of course, I'd been rolling at this point. Man, I, I'd been doing jiu-jitsu seminars, camps, clinics, whatever, for about seven years, 
and uh, just rolling where we could. And, and I mean, at that time, all jujitsu was self-defense or Valley Tudo would morphed into MMA. Valley uh, Tudo just meaning anything goes in Portuguese, you know what I mean? The, the wild and woolly days, the beginning days. So it was way more oriented uh, towards MMA and self-defense. There wasn't a tournament scene. There, there were no tournaments. The first tournament I saw in America, I put on. You know, I mean, uh, I, I can remember when I was still promoting point karate tournaments, I would run a grappling division. You know, we would, we would just include it. There'd be some mats over the corner, and you might have six, eight, ten guys, tops. You know, I mean, we'd have maybe two weight divisions or three weight, you know, light, middle, and heavy, or light and heavy, divide everybody up and go, okay, you guys are lightweights, and you guys are heavyweights, and they grapple. You know, um, there, there, there just wasn't, uh, there wasn't a lot. Uh, even in the state, there was a guy named Mark McFan, who was a JKD guy up in Northwest mm -hmm. Arkansas, uh, was doing some, doing some grappling and, and, uh, there were, you know, Max Bishop, there were the guys in Memphis, Jeff Mullins and his group, Max and his group, uh, uh, there was another, there were some boys uh, down in the southern part of the state uh, that I knew of that were doing some grappling as well. And uh, and that was about it, you know, me in central Arkansas. There just, there wasn't a lot of people doing it. Well, when Tony, uh, anyway, to get back on track, Tony um, came to Arkansas. He'd worked for, uh, he was a brown belt at the time. Uh, he was a uh, student of Andre Pettineris' Novignon. And he, uh, he, he'd worked at John Lewis's school in Vegas and was teaching there. And then from Vegas, went to California to go to work for Allen when Allen opened up his academy. Pardon me, the first couple of seminars I did with Allen or uh, private lessons when I flew out to Allen's, we trained in his garage. He had mats in his garage. He was doing private lessons in his garage until he opened up his formal academy. So uh, from, uh, from there, I mean, Tony actually came out and, and did a testing for us. We had a formal, a formal rank review, a formal testing when I got my blue belt. Then uh, uh, I was, you know, I'd been kickboxing. I was training fighters back then, more for kickboxing and stuff. We ended up uh, talking Tony as a brown belt into fighting some MMA. So he, uh, I, I was training him in MMA and in striking, and he was training us in BJJ. We had a really symbiotic relationship. He uh, stayed with us for quite a while, went back to California. I went out to California and trained with uh, he and Alan. Um, then uh, he came back to Arkansas for a while, uh, for another period of time, and then he moved to, back to Brazil. Um, in the meantime, we lost touch with Alan Goes. Alan uh, just moved back to Brazil. I didn't, there was never any negativity. Alan Goes was never anything but freaking awesome to me. Um, introduced me to a lot of people. I trained in his house. I loved Alan. I just couldn't find Alan. <laughs> you know, when he, uh, when he, when he moved back to Brazil and, I lost touch with them and 
always, always stop the world of them, but you can't train with somebody that you can't find. Um, I, uh, and I had my relationship with Tony. In the meantime, Tony got his black belt. One of the, when he went back to California, uh, Carlson and Allen had presented Tony with his black belt. Um, of course, Andre Pedneris was on the Carlson Gracie black belt team too. Um, Carlson and Andre endorsed Tony's black belt. They, uh, that's so, I'm kind of proud of the fact that every rank I've gotten from blue belt through fourth degree black belt has been under Tony Emanuel. You know what I mean? That's just been my, uh, been how I got it. And, uh, so that's, that's pretty much it. At 2001, when Tony was teaching at my gym, we, we were the third Novignon school in the United States. Um, it was, it was, uh, John Lewis in, uh, Vegas. And then, uh, uh, Shruto Verissimo was in, uh, Hawaii. And then it was Tony Emanuel teaching in my gym in, uh, here in, in, uh, Sherwood, you know, central Arkansas, Little Rock area for all practical purposes. So we were the third. When I got my black belt, I uh, went down in October of uh, 2001, went down and spent two weeks of just getting my butt kicked three times a day, you know, morning, noon, and night. Uh, we, uh, when I went there and I got, uh, uh, spent two weeks down there training, and before I came home, uh, I was presented my black belt by Andre Pettineris, but I was definitely Tony's student, you know what I mean? It was because of Tony that I got my black belt. And I was the ninth Novignol black belt in the United States at that time. Um, there, wasn't, there wasn't that many BJJ black belts. Uh, there was a, used to be a website called BJJ.org that had listed everybody from Mieda on that was under that lineage that had a, a BJJ black belt, which was pretty cool. And I got, I was on that website. And then now you can't keep track of black belts, right? I mean, they've just exploded. There's so many, but uh, it's amazing. It wasn't that long ago, man, when finding a black belt was really, really rare. You know I mean? I, I can remember flying out to California to roll with a blue belt and being like, whoa, these guys are blue belts, you know? Hey, there's purple belts and I mean, it was uh, crazy. And the fact that I had a, a brown belt, black belt living with me, you know, coaching me, training me on the daily was just, you know, incredible. Now it's not even unusual. But back, back then, man, you know, go back damn near 30 years, you know, 25 years, that was really a, uh, that was really a big thing. So how, how long have you been training? It's grand total now. How, how much time do you have in the game just with jiu-jitsu? I said, how much time do you have in the game just with jiu-jitsu? Well, since the 90s. Since 90, uh, 91. I, I started with Burl Parsons, I think, in 89 or uh, – in 89 in, in like, Japanese jiu-jitsu. I had probably been training with Burl for about a year, I think, before I did my first. Uh, so it was the end of 89, winter 89, uh, uh, or fall 89, and then 90. And so I, I had about a year of jiu-jitsu training before I did the, you know, worked out with the Gracies. Um, and then 
between the two, the weeping style and the, the Brazilian, um, hadn't stopped. So, and I have 2000, I mean, I'm coming up on 20 years of being a BJJ black belt. So, yeah. so long, uh, long time. Definitely sure. have seen a lot of changes in the art, um, in America for sure. And it's been, uh, it's been really cool. I mean, it's a great, uh, it's great to see the evolution. Yeah, it, you know, I what I one thing I'll do when I put this podcast out is I'll share some of our previous podcasts. So if people haven't seen those, you you come on and talked about your taekwondo, uh, your background with uh, several other martial arts that you've done for you know a long time. What was it that got you interested in getting involved with jiu-jitsu? Like, how did that happen into your life? I mean, did you – I've heard you talk about this a little bit over the years, but, I mean, what led you down that road? Well, um, I think every time something's come along and kicked my butt for me real good, I was like, you know, I ought to learn how to do that. So, uh, I think that's definitely part of it. Um, also, being in and here, like I mentioned, training some of the JKD stuff, uh, I, I, like Bruce Lee said, out fighting, in fighting, trapping, grappling, and on the mat. And uh, I, I remember going through, I'm going to give some props to a guy named uh, Dr. Jerry Beasley. Dr. Beasley um, teaches at Radford University and uh, puts on the karate college. And I can remember going to a JKD camp um, Radford University JKD camp and that had to have been uh, I think the year I, the first year I went was in 93 uh, Ted Wong Howard Williams some of Bruce Lee's students uh, were there that year and uh, he uh, but Dr. Beasley did this lecture and he was talking you know kind of about this matrix of styles that allow you to flow through the ranges of art uh, through the ranges of fighting Talking about how, like, well, you know, Taekwondo would be a great outfighting art. And it's got a little bit of infighting, but really it's known for what? It's kicking, you know, the side kick, the round kicks, uh, kicking that's a little more uh, on an outfighting kind of level. I mean, in our patterns, uh, you know, we have some hands, uh, there's, you know, a few elbows and a few knees, but it's really an outfighting, you know, at its core um, with a little bit of infighting. And then you look at something like Muay Thai that has, you know, not only long range, but it's got a more, a little more infighting hands, low line kicks, clinch work, knee work, elbow work. So you look at that, that's, man, you know, stronger infighting. And then um, look at an art like, say, weeping style where you're, you know, doing control holds or Greco-Roman, you know, some sort of, uh, wrestling, upper body control wrestling um, for the stand-up. And there's, you know, Filipino arts or Wing Chun, a lot of stand-up trapping and grappling. Um, and then Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for the ground. Could be wrestling, freestyle for the – or folk style or whatever style, wrestling on the ground. Judo uh, for the ground, Sambo. So when you look at these, these different styles – you know, Western boxing, and it's a, it's a infighting art, you know, I mean, you're, you're talking punching and moving and 
But every time they clinch, what happens? The referees break, break them, you know? Muay Thai, they work for the clinch, so they can go to work with knees and elbows. So different arts excel at different ranges. I, I remember that, that matrix of styles that tend to excel at different ranges of fighting to be able to flesh out your particular game. And um, it became real apparent, man, I, you know, one of the areas that I personally was deficient in and weak at was the, was the ground game, you know? And, and, and then it would have to have been the stand-up grappling you know, we had done a little bit with some, because I was in the Muay Thai and uh, even the Burmese boxing. So I had uh, a little bit of that, but uh, I, I was primarily, most of my training, especially in my early years, were out fighting and in fighting, you know, taekwondo and kickboxing. That's uh, boxing slash kickboxing, taekwondo. Everything was, you know, Thai, Thai boxing, it was all more out fighting and in fighting arts. And then I started getting into the weeping style. And of course, through Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, it led me back around to stand up wrestling, you know, to some wrestling, um, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I mean, I've been influenced by Judo and, and by uh, uh, Sambo and by this and by that. I mean, you know, good stuff is good stuff. I, I think it transcends a name. And I, I'm, I don't cross-train with Sambo through Gokar, but I, I, I can't claim to be a student uh, other than the fact that I did private lessons and seminars with them. But it was interesting, and it made me study, study some of that stuff. It's the same thing with, like, doing a judo seminar or uh, this. I mean, I don't, I don't hold any rank in those arts. But that doesn't mean I haven't hit some seminars, hit classes, or been influenced in some small way by them. So that, but that lecture was interesting to me that Dr. Beasley did because just having that going back to Bruce Lee's out fighting, in fighting, trapping, grappling, and on the mat, and then looking at the styles that allow you to flow through those ranges, because therefore then you become a complete martial artist. I am less about style and more about efficacy, you know, and being able to defend myself through those ranges. I want to be a martial artist first and a stylist second. And a complete martial artist ought to be able to defend themselves in, a, in any environment, you know? And so there's the saying, he who controls the distance controls the fight. So if you're not, you know, if you're only a kicker and you get taken off your feet, you're in trouble. Or if you're only a grappler and you can't take it to the ground, you're in trouble, you know? so. Uh, I think being well-rounded is just, is, is really important. And now I have this matrix of arts that allow me to deal with various ranges of fighting. And then when I get to train with somebody that's outside, I mean, you know, if I was at a folk style or a catch as catch can wrestling seminar, I'm going to have enough familiarity with grappling in the ground that maybe I can incorporate some of that stuff into my personal game, you know? Or if I was at a, a, a Sambo seminar, or if I was at a, a Filipino or a, a, a Salat, say, you know, where there's some stand-up trapping, head, butts, and elbow work. I've got, I've got enough in these various styles that I, I could go train, and I, I've cross-trained in so many different arts, that 
I'm going to be able to pick up and utilize, you know, absorb, like Bruce Lee would say, absorb what is useful. And what is useful, I think, varies on the individual. You know what I mean? Because our own particular builds. I love the Brazilian jiu-jitsu concept of game. You know what I mean? What your game is. And your game is going to be based a lot on your physical attributes, what, you know, God gave you, size, reach, you know, strength. There's uh, – but – in, in all martial arts, that, that concept, I think, is, is really huge, is developing your game. So that's, you know, ask me what time it is, so I'm telling you how to make a watch. But that, that's what drew me to wanting to be really, really well-rounded was, uh, you know, that, that idea of being able to transcend style and be able to flow through the ranges of combat. No, that's – that's a great answer. You know, like a lot of people, I got I mean, not a lot, but I've had several guests on where I end up having to ask the question a lot of different ways before I get a, a really good answer out of them, you know? So it, it's nice that when I have a guest that talks and shit, sometimes they turn it around on me and start asking me questions. That makes, then it makes for a really interesting one. <laughs> but uh, anyway, well, so, you know, you mentioned like one thing I was thinking before we, started recording is like I have seen jiu-jitsu change a lot since I've been involved in 2006 and I was like man I can't imagine how much he's seen it change right like and you kind of alluded to that earlier but what are, what are some things that you know in the United States like what are some big changes you think you've seen in jiu-jitsu like just generally speaking some things that stand out other than they're just being for me it's black belts in the state of Arkansas like I remember when Caleb was the only blue belt I knew and now there, there are too many black belts in the state for me to know. Right. No, I don't know all the black belts anymore. I, I, uh, there was a time when I knew everybody in about a four or five state area that was capable of producing an MMA fighter. And now I can't keep up with the garage gyms in Sherwood, Arkansas. You know I mean? It's the old joke. Everybody's training to be a cage fighter, you know? Um, one of the biggest things, and I think the biggest thing that has precipitated as much change is that it has never been as easy as it is right now to get information. I can't keep up with the free technical videos that hit my mailbox that are trying to entice you to buy somebody's training series, right? So, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly getting emails from this, that, the other, and they're pitching, you know, this guard series, this side control series, this top side domination course, this. And so they're always giving free videos and techniques for you, pardon me, for you to look at. And I'm like, man, it, it's hard to keep up with that. I've got, there is so much information. I can remember like getting a VHS tape of uh, when uh, Tony, my coach, came into town and he had some VHS tapes of like some of the Brazilian grappling tournaments. And we were like, oh man, you know, that was so cool. And then, you know, having, uh, I had uh, Pedro Sowers uh, video uh, VHS tapes, you know, his rank tapes, you know, requirements for rank. It was like, man, these are just freaking awesome. And it was so hard. Now, I mean, you can walk on, I can pick up my cell phone and have 
more jujitsu technique on YouTube than I could ever hope to learn, you know? So it went from being stupid hard, like really, really difficult to get information. We would do fundraisers. I would, I would do like a car wash or a seminar and, and I would do fundraisers so that I could fly to California and, and it wasn't just flying out to California. It was getting a hotel room and renting a car and then paying a hundred to $150 an hour for a private lesson. Dude. I mean, at that time in my career, you know, that was a lot of money. I mean, that was, that was difficult, you know I mean? To be able to, uh, to accomplish that. And it took, and then I'd bring home what I did and teach it to my guys. And then we would, all beat the hell out of each other, you know, trying to, oh, well, this is cool. Now, information is easy to get. It wasn't easy to get in the beginning. And there was very few sources. There wasn't the internet like it is today. There wasn't, uh, it just wasn't readily available, you know. Now, well, you just, if you got an internet connection, you know, you can, you can get all the information that you uh, need. There's schools everywhere. I mean, you know, jujitsu schools are popping up like mushrooms after a spring rain. They're just, there's, they're, they're everywhere. So it just wasn't like that. And then the other thing is that I mentioned earlier is that we didn't have competitions. Like I, I never saw a competition until I hosted one. And then uh, I back, uh, you know, it, it was, it was difficult because of health reasons, everything. My first tournament that I personally competed in was the International Masters and Seniors as a black belt down in Rio de Janeiro. I was like, you know, I'm not as much of a competitor as I was in all my other arts. I'm like, I'm, I've got to, you know, I had a window of health and I was between, between some hip surgeries and I'm like, I want to go. And at that time, the International Masters and Seniors in Rio, I thought for my uh, age to it was pretty much the the tournament to go to so i uh i went down there and and uh competed but i mean there, when i was coming up there what there weren't tournament now you can if you want to compete there's a tournament well, at least pre-covid and i'm sure we'll get back to it you know but for a while i mean within if you're willing to drive six hours you know which isn't that bad in any direction you're gonna find a tournament oklahoma Oklahoma City, Tulsa, Dallas, um, St. Louis, Memphis, Little Rock. I mean, somewhere in inside of about six hours, there was going to be a tournament. So if you want to compete, you don't necessarily have to go across country. You can, you can draw a circle around your home and uh, of about a four to six hour circle, and you're going to find a tournament every freaking weekend. Competition just boosts excellence you know what i mean so and like i said when jiu-jitsu first came to america it was all about self-defense and then to a lesser extent mma valley tudo now jiu-jitsu has trends is pretty much turned i mean there's kind of a every once in a while you'll see people talking about self-defense jiu-jitsu versus tournament jiu-jitsu and uh, there's interesting discussions because um, tournament jiu-jitsu tends to be, you know, kind of highly stylized. And there's games in tournament jiu-jitsu 
that may not translate, oh, well, that wouldn't work in the street. I'm like, you know, you get to that level athletically, you're probably going to be smart enough to realize, well, you know, I'm not doing this, this, or this if I'm on the street, you know? Um, when you're in really, really good shape and you're training to kick, you know, to fight people that are training to kick your ass, uh, I'm going to say that the guys that are high-level competitors, they're going to be okay if they have to defend themselves. Um, but tournament jiu-jitsu has, has transformed the game, you know? I mean, there's, there's so many people that are, are competing, and uh, it, it, it does make a difference in, in elevating the level. And so when you combine the, the ready opportunity to compete along with just the ease of which you can get information, I mean, you know, it used to be the only way you would see a technique is if you competed. Like if you, your coach knew what your coach knew, it wasn't like you were going on the internet and getting any secret techniques. You tended to have a little bit of a smaller set. And if somebody was successful with something, unless you happen to be at that tournament and witness that and were able to ask that guy how he did it, man, school techniques were school techniques. Shit. Now, I mean, there are no school techniques, right? I mean, everybody knows what everybody is doing. So it becomes teaching methodologies and training methodologies and then the application through competition that allows you to know, you know, what's, what's hot and what's not. Because if somebody's successful, man, it's all over the internet. You got people breaking it down and people are doing tournament reviews. They're doing fight reviews and you can see and learn how people are doing stuff that fast. And man, that didn't exist. You know, I mean, that's a product of just the last 25, 30 years. You know, we forget sometimes that we take our, our cell phones and our, our smartphones for granted. But, they, I, you know, I can remember going to college. If I needed to talk to somebody, I better have some quarters. And I'm old enough to remember when it took a dime to make a payphone call, you know? So now, I mean, it's like payphones. Road landlines? What the hell's a landline? You know, I mean, I'm like, yeah, when dinosaurs roamed the earth. Uh, so the, the information and, you know, when you got somebody that's doing something that's hot, man, somebody has success, the, the latest, greatest tournament, Wonder Boy, you know, man, if somebody blows everybody out of the water at the pans or at the worlds or at the whatever, man, there's probably going to be a DVD for sale or there's, I mean, or a, or a, a series that you can download on your computer right then. Like, you know, DVDs are passe. Now it's all just, you know, click this link. You got access to everything. And uh, man, that's a, that's a big, that's a big change. For sure. For sure. You know, one thing like what we kind of we were talking about before the podcast cut off and we rejoined, like, and I was thinking earlier, I've been talking to my students about this is we're talking about fitness and the importance of exercising for what we do. And that's something that like now, particularly, I kind of got to a point where it's like I'm exercising daily at the fitness center. But I remember hearing like Marcelo Garcia on one of these 
one of these readily accessible uh, videos on the internet saying like, why would I lift weights? Like jujitsu, that's all I got time for. And I was like, yeah, that's what I want to believe, you know? And for a while, I mean, like when I was competing, I was exercising, but it was, man, it was just to like hit weight and stuff and to like, train for a tournament and like on the other side of that over the last year particularly now I'm just exercising to feel better you know and and it's it's complementing my jiu-jitsu in every way too that's how I feel well think of it this way um back in the early days of the NFL they didn't believe in lifting weights it was you want to be good at playing football you played football there was not a strength coach in the NFL until the mid-70s. Now, can you imagine trying to compete in the NFL today, or for that matter, college, or for that matter, high school, without doing strength and conditioning? Wouldn't, wouldn't happen. I mean, you know, you're just you're, – you're not going to be in the same league. And so – you know, Marcelo Garcia is a freak athlete, and his jiu-jitsu is par excellence. Um, so, but if if you don't come from the genetic end of the gene pool, you know, now I'm not saying there might not be some, you know, just gifted Adonis-type athletes that, you know, maybe they don't have to spend a lot of time. But, man, uh, these days – you know, we just know enough about exercise physiology, kinesiology, sports science is, is off the chain. And so if you start getting guys that, I mean, not only are really, really, really technical, but they are also really, really, really trained, man, that becomes scary. One of the reasons, and if you look at the UFC and you look at the number of high caliber wrestlers that end up becoming UFC champions. And somebody said, oh, that speaks to the efficacy of, of wrestling. And I said, well, you know, I think it speaks to the efficacy of a D1 college athletic program, where when you're on scholarship and you're told you got to be at the track at six o'clock in the morning for your running, and then you go to a table and somebody who's a nutritionist that's going to college for nutrition makes sure that you eat exactly what you need. You're getting your macros and your micros and your everything you need, and your calories. And then, oh, now you're meeting with somebody else that's a strength and conditioning coach. And after this class, you got to be there. And then you're working with, you know, top level uh, other athletes and you're competing at a D1 level. When you come out of the D1 athletic program and you're a high-level college athlete, man, for somebody that's been recreationally doing jiu-jitsu, that's tough to compete with, you know? And if – when you have got that – when you come out of a, a, a college athletic program, then you go into professional fighting, it's just like it's a continuation. You're already used to, to – to training and running and lifting and you're coming out of a structured program where the people that were working with you 
have fancy initials after their name. You know, you got guys that have degrees and PhDs and sports science and kinesiology and nutrition that have been really working with you. Whereas somebody that just kind of like, well, you know, I got my blue belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I think I'm going to be an MMA fighter. And it's like, you know, dude, that's pretty tough. You know, that's a, that's a pretty tough thing to, uh, to compete with. You know, that's like asking somebody that, hey, you know, I mean, I've been playing flag football with my buddies on the weekend and, you know, I'm pretty good. And I think I'm going to go try out for the NFL. And you would look at him and just start laughing and go, you're going to get killed. You know, you're going to get destroyed. Well, that's why some of these college guys, I think some of the wrestlers, if you had in a, when Ronda, uh, when Ronda Rousey was, was first hit the scene and she was dominating, she came from the Olympic Training Center. I mean, she was an Olympic athlete. So you look at some of these people that, and again, the same thing, nutritionist, you know, strength and conditioning coaches, high level technical coaches that are all about sports science and performance and not just, I'm teaching a little bit. You know, somebody coming out of an Olympic training center, I mean, makes a difference. And for a while, she had a good run until somebody answered that riddle. You know, I mean, uh, that, that makes a difference. Can you imagine if all of a sudden we had collegiate jujitsu? You know, BJJ makes it into the, into the colleges and there was collegiate competitions and you could make a, a scholarship or, and you had all those kinds of coaches, jujitsu would change. If you had, uh, if it made it to the Olympics and you had people training at the Olympic training center. So I don't know. I, I'm kind of got off on a tangent there with it, but when, when it's talking, when it comes time, I'm, I have, I've got no doubt that proper sports science as it relates to your conditioning, your flexibility, your cardio, yeah, you know, your strength. When you couple that kind of training, that gives us guys that are mere mortal human beings that aren't gifted like Marcelo Garcia, that gives us a chance, you know? And uh, I'm, the older I get, and you know, all these ranks and everything, man, my shoulders hurt, my elbows hurt, my back hurts. If I want to stay on the mat, even just as a coach, I have to train. I mean, I've, I've got to, or I'm not going to be able to perform athletically. I'm not going to be able to do what I love. Well, you know, remark again on how good I thought you were moving around the other day. Like when you shot that double leg, I was like, I hope I can shoot double legs like that when I'm his age. Well, not, saying you. you're, not saying uh, you're just I, like. I get in. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying you're just one foot in the grave or anything like that. But, you know, I mean, you've had your both your hips replaced and you work out and you exercise. And, man, I was just like, that's what I thought when you when you shot. I was like, I, I want to be able to shoot like that when I'm 58 or, or however old you are. So, and, man, that is that is like a big thing that's changed for me. And, like, one thing that I dislike now on the other side of this being a narrative that, you know, jujitsu and fitness going together ever since, like, I, you know, you released that book, honestly. Now, now I understand it on a, like, a quality of life level, right? Like, 
how did I ever not do this shit? Do I hurt like this because I wasn't doing it? You know, I mean, just it's it's really exercising daily, whether it's riding my bike or uh, walking or lifting weights or running or whatever it is I do, man. It's it's really made it's enriched my martial arts experience uh, for sure over the last year. So, yeah, well, uh, well, right on. Well, I say, man, let's go ahead and wrap it up for today. Uh, we've been we've been chatting for about an hour and uh, got to hear some some incredible stories and just man, it's always always a pleasure just getting to hear all the history of what you've done. I, I'm glad that we this is I think our fourth podcast. And I've, I've heard things that I never heard you say before in all four of these conversations, you know, so it's, it's a pleasure for me to get to sit down and talk with you like this. Dude, I, I appreciate it. I, I thank you for the opportunity. It's nice to kind of share my lifetime body of work, you know, I mean, it's a uh, martial arts is a performing art and, and uh, to be able to kind of share some of these stories and, you know, it's been an honor to watch you and your personal journey and, coming up through the ranks. It was funny on my Facebook uh, picture of Cora as a white belt, you know, and then there was another picture showed up a while back when you were at the gym as a white belt. And I, uh, in neat to seeing what you guys have accomplished in your journeys and with your academies and your students. And then, you know, man, it's, it's been fun. And obviously I don't need a lot of prompting to, uh, to run that mouth. So thank you for being so kind as to let me talk and, it's an honor, and I look forward to visiting with you again here soon. All right. Excellent. Thank you, Coach. I appreciate it. Take care, bro. I'll talk to you later. Have a good one.